You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Dr. Emanuel Bronner was a master soap maker, self-proclaimed rabbi, and allegedly Albert Einstein's nephew. In 1947, after escaping from a mental institution, he invented the formula for Dr. Bronner's magic soap, a peppermint-infused, all-natural, multi-purpose liquid that can be found today in every American health food store. On each bottle of his soap, he printed an ever-evolving set of teachings he called the Moral ABC, designed in his words to unite all mankind free. With us today is Sarah Lamb, the director and producer of the documentary, Dr. Bronner's Magic Soapbox. Sarah Lamb, welcome to film school. Hi, thank you so much. Well, congratulations on your child. Oh, thank you. That's pretty exciting. When did this all happen? I had the baby about six months ago. Oh, excellent. So yeah. you're having a good time with the Yes, we're yeah. having a great time. Boy or girl? Little girl. All right. And the name? Her name is Juno. Oh! <laughs> oh what before the, the film, I, I would like to go on record. Okay. Oh, before the film? Is, is that the middle name? Before the film? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, before the film. Like. Very good. Now, now, how is it that a performance artist finds herself making a documentary about a soap maker? Well, I'd always been working with sound text and making sort of what I would call, in a way, kind of documentary performances. Hmm. And so, like, things that I've worked with included court transcripts and strange things that I received in the mail and, and photography, using that as a jumping-off point for making performance work. And I somehow came upon the idea in the shower that I would do a performance based on the text of Dr. Bonner's soap label. And so did and staged this soap label and wrote to the company and asked if they would donate some soap to the theater where I was working and ended up sort of striking up a friendship with Ralph Bronner. Now, I'm just curious, how long have you been using Dr. Bronner's soap? Well, I've been using the soap for over 10 years. Okay. And I'd been using the soap, say, for maybe three or four at the moment that I decided to do the performance piece. And I just always looked at it, as most people probably do, and, and wondered what on earth is going on here. <laughs> <laughs> now, did the performance piece involve a lot of the moral ABC? Yeah, it was strictly the moral ABC. We um, dressed up in uh, white jumpsuits and called ourselves the All One Missionaries. And uh -huh. it was sort of a movement-based piece, and some of the movement was inspired by cheerleaders. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, it, was, okay. it was surreal and uh, respectful but comedic, I would say. <laughs> well, uh, there you go, because while a lot of the material on the label is certainly open to uh, multiple interpretations, a lot of it is very straightforward you know, biblical scriptures, Thomas Paine, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's got a lot of serious content, but then there are some of the other things on the label that kind of take you into a different place. Yeah. Uh, now, did you find the transition was easy between performance art and making a film? Well, in some ways, there were things that I felt like I understood because I'd been structuring performances, but then there were whole areas that I had to really do a lot of learning. And, and I was lucky that I had an editor who was very patient with me and could explain time code and why that was so important and things like that that, that I didn't necessarily have experience with. Now, did your editor help with the structure or mainly just to make the cuts? It, it was 
was a, a lot of back and forth with her. I was trying to work with a performative idea in terms of the structure, so to keep it kind of loose in a way that sort of paralleled some of the performance work that I'm used to doing, which is why the narrative of the film is it's a little slippery. It's not like uh-huh. super, you know, sort of linear. And that was sort of a deliberate choice that stemmed from my past experience. And, and she and I went back and forth a lot with that. But she, she also contributed a lot in terms of, like, constructing the scenes themselves. Well, I think I also see it, too, in just your, your interview style. I, I think one of the interviews gets interrupted, I think, with Ralph. Somebody walks by behind the camera, and, uh-huh. and you just leave that in there. That, and it works great. I have to say, I, I like things like that a lot. I appreciate oh, I'm glad you do. Yeah. Let's get into the story of Dr. Emanuel Bronner. Sure. Dr. Bronner was a German Jew who came to America in 1929. His family had run um, soap plants for several generations, and the soap plant in Germany was taken over by Nazis, and his family was killed in the Holocaust. But he was in America during that time and began preaching his peace plan in the 1940s, possibly in relationship to the fact that his family had suffered this incredible trauma. But he was arrested in 1946 for preaching without a permit um, at the University of Chicago, and he was locked up involuntarily by his sister in an insane asylum where he was given shock treatment. And he escaped and fled to California and started making his own peppermint soap and hit upon the idea that he could put his peace plan on the label. His line was, everyone needs soap. The soap is just the messenger. <laughs> so he, he arrived in California... In the, in the late 40s. The late 40s, okay. Mm-hmm. So he'd been, been producing soap for quite a long time when along came the counterculture. Exactly, yeah. Which was, a, in some ways, a perfect vehicle for him, or at least a very receptive audience for his They were mess. a really receptive audience. I mean, one of the things that I found so interesting about Dr. Bronner is I think from the outset I assumed that he was a hippie, but it turns out that he wasn't. The hippies responded to his message, but in fact he was from a much older generation, and he was very against drug use. He was very much about, you know, get a job and work hard, and he wasn't exactly sort of like going hang out in the field and do acid and he wasn't the timothy leary of soap making no he wasn't he wasn't but at the beginning i sort of thought that that's what i would find and and it turns out what he was very happy with in terms of the hippies is that they were very spiritually curious and and as is he and he essentially articulated the idea that that essentially all religions come to this one should if they don't should come to this one place yeah where where it's one god that we all worship yep and he really... Are, are you channeling Dr. Bronner now, I'm Mike? trying. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm doing a poor job of it. Just, well, the fascinating part, yeah. uh, given that, given that we're talking about a, uh, a gentleman who's professing to unite all mankind free, his relationship to his son, Ralph, is a... His son. Yeah, his sons, but especially to Ralph, is, is a very, uh, I guess by modern standards, unhealthy one. Mm. And yet, during the film, uh, it seems that Ralph is completely embraced his father mm-hmm. and there's there's no negativity between the two at all did you ever explore more than what we see in the film with ralph i kept pressing ralph to sort of admit that there was some of that negativity and i never could really find it yeah. um which was something that i found to be really really interesting and puzzling to me because you know you sort of always expect someone to eventually relent and say like oh well okay but i am still angry about my dad that he did this to me yeah. or whatever. And I found it so puzzling and, and in a way so refreshing. I don't know. I guess that's one of the questions that I continue to have is, does Ralph have any lingering sort of uh, 
emotional scars from his childhood. Well, let's review his childhood. Dr. Bronner, this sort of with this missionary zeal, is out to save the world through his soap. And he's he has three children. He has a daughter, Eleanor, Ralph, and Jim. And what happens to them? Well, he's out saving the world. Their mom was in and out of hospitals, and it's not clear if she was physically sick or also having suffering from some mental disorders of some sort. She was in and out of hospitals, and Dr. Bronner would leave them with various families, people that he would meet in bars or in German dance halls. Eventually, they wound up in a permanent foster family, but they were in you know something like 17 homes over the course of five or six years. And then finally, when Dr. Bronner went away to the institution and then he just fled to California, they were with a German family that took them in, that that kept them until they were, you know, 18. Some of the foster families were not very nice to them. And Ralph remembers waking up in a a basement with dogs that were biting them. And, And in fact, I didn't get as many of the details as probably are there, but it sounded like it was very difficult. But it, it was a different time, and, and perhaps like the expectation that a father should take care of his kids was slightly different in the 1930s. Nowadays, we would find that totally unacceptable. I, I don't know exactly how unacceptable it was at that time. We're speaking with Sarah Lamb. The film is Dr. Bronner's Magic Soapbox documentary. Dr. Bronner's father comes across as sort of a harsh disciplinarian, a sort of a harsh man. Right. And it seemed to have carried over into, in some ways, into Emmanuel's uh, life. Right. And then we get into his treatment of his, his family. Despite the, this tumultuous and, I'm sure, traumatic childhood, two of the sons go into the business of making soap. They go into their father's business. Mm-hmm. And Ralph becomes as almost evangelical about the soap as his father. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen right away. I think that's been over the course of many years. Ralph's retired now, but during the bulk of his working life, he jokes he had it easy. He taught inner city seventh and eighth grade, mm-hmm. whereas his brother was working day-to-day with his dad at, at the soap plant in California. So it, it wasn't until sort of later, I think, that Ralph began sort of really uh, taking on the message of his father and coming to realize that part of his mission in life was to carry on his dad's legacy. Jim Bronner, well, he was a chemist as well and began working in, in soaps and manufacturing soaps and then also began participating um, with Dr. Bronner in, in his business. Unfortunately, uh, Jim has passed, so you weren't able to have any interviews with him during the course of the making of this film. But well, we see archival footage of him. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and fortunately, you had, there was another filmmaker who had a right. project that seemed to be about halfway done. Right. And so you, you inherited all that. Right. How, how did that relationship go with the, uh, the other filmmaker? Well, wow, that was really incredible. Um, before I began the film, I actually had made a radio piece that aired on NPR affiliates. And here was a filmmaker in L.A. who had started a project about Dr. Bronner in the ni- early 1980s, and he heard the piece wow. and called the Bronner family and said, you know, I have all of this footage. I'd like to make a documentary about you. And Trudy Bronner, I believe, answered the phone and said, oh, actually, Sarah Lamb has already begun that. So he called me up, and we had a series of sort of back-and-forth negotiations, and eventually we were able to license his footage. And that was terrific, because there was not a lot of images of Dr. Bronner. We had some photographs, and there was a tiny bit of footage of him from the film Rainbow Bridge. But besides that, we didn't, we didn't really have a lot, and so it really expanded the scope of what we were able to do. 
And I, I was so pleased because it was incredible to me how that archival footage mirrored so almost exactly the footage that I was shooting. We, would, we went to, like, um, Dr. Bronner's house, and the same paintings were on the wall, and uh-huh. Ralph was sitting in the exact same chair that I had footage, you know, from 30 years earlier where wow. Dr. Bronner was sitting. I just was so thrilled to be able to use that footage. The color in that film was really saturated, too. Was that shot any differently? You know, I know or? it was 16 millimeter, and uh-huh. I don't know how he... Um, yeah, he really did get some bright it. colors out of it. Yeah, I was yeah, just wondering was nice. if that was part of the film. That wasn't something you did to differentiate. No, that yeah. was straight up, and, and the filmmaker deserves to be mentioned. His name is Stuart Nelson, and he, yeah, I thought he did a beautiful job. Well, there's some terrific scenes of yeah. him at, at, the, at the printing press. There's a scene that opens the film with Dr. Emmanuel well, You know, Bronner one thing we and, didn't mention, I just quickly, yeah. Dr. Bron- Bronner is also blind. Right, yes. he was in the yeah. last 20 years of his life. Yeah, so there's a lot of scenes you see. Right, no, with, yeah, that's with, true. Yeah, I just wanted to yeah, introduce yeah, no, that's that true. aspect of this thing, too, Yeah, because I thought you were going to mention oh, the, the one, one scene, scene at the very beginning. Yeah. You want to go ahead, Mike? Well, no, I, just the scene of him at the printing press, and then, of course, there's a scene where he's poolside, and, he, and a steward is interviewing him about the soap and he's going on about his philosophy and such and then it cuts to a scene uh, of a woman who's also poolside and I don't know the relationship between uh, Bronner, Dr. Bronner and the woman you know what I'm talking about. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, that was a friend of his. Just a friend. And she's talking about it but in the background <laughs> you have a scene where Dr. Bronner continues to talk while the woman is being interviewed. He's right. in the background, out of focus, still talking, yeah. apparently right. still carrying on the interview, and someone else is being interviewed. Yeah, And I heard that you were thinking whether or not you should have put that scene in, only be, you know, out, of, out of respect for Dr. Bronner. Well, I mean, it's a tricky thing, right? Because definitely that is one of the first big laughs in the film, uh-huh. um, and people find it so funny that their Dr. Bronner is going on and on, and he hasn't shut up yet with his moral <laughs> ABC. But on the other hand, he was blind, and so, you know, to be fair, the audience should know, like, well, he couldn't necessarily see that he wasn't the center of attention. Right. But then at the same time, again, it also felt like a pretty clear um, and true-to-life representation of how Dr. Bronner was. He was he was performing the moral ABC basically at all times in all places. And so I, I sort of at the end of the day decided that it was, that it was a pretty uh, true-to-life representation of what he was like. Um, no, I, and, was... and we decided to go for it, and, and at least in the in the DVD uh, extras, the director's commentary, I come clean with the. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a nice. It is one of those scenes where, uh, when you watch it initially, you you do you have to laugh because yeah. here he's just going on, but uh, given the context that you just described, it really does encapsulate his personality in in a lot of ways. From the footage, from what you see in this film, he could never stop himself from talking about this stuff. He couldn't stop. Yeah. It was it was his his complete raison d'être, I would say, yeah. um, the moral ABC and getting us all to understand his message. The other fascinating thing about the product, and I think it's probably say it's, it stems from Dr. Bronner, is just how environmentally sensitive it is. I guess yeah. you'd say. I mean, way way ahead of his time, and yeah. and and also his idea of constructive capitalism, where yeah. where people should be paid an honest wage and the people in charge shouldn't be making so much more than their workers that it's obscene. All these things come across the movie, and it, it, which makes his character so fascinating, that on one hand, he seems like the insane genius. 
Yes. Well, I took some of some of our archival materials to a forensic psychologist at one point, and she said she said it was very important not to try to fit him into either he was crazy or else he was a visionary. Uh-huh. Um, she said, you know, it's very possible to be a visionary crackpot or a crackpot visionary. <laughs> um, and and I think that really, I mean, to to leave out the visionary aspect of what Dr. Bronner was. Um, is really to miss a big part of the point mm-hmm. because um, even even more so today, his company is a, is an incredible model for how capitalism can function. Um, yeah. Under the grandkids, you know, they're they're they've gone all fair trade, they've gone all organic, um, and they really see their company as a. At one point, uh, Mike Bronner said it's a great big stick to play with um, to create the kind of change that we w- that we want to see in the world. You got to say that that starts with Dr. Bronner and his vision of what was possible. You, you just touched on something. We, we mentioned the children getting into the business, but we also have another generation of Bronners who are in the, in the business of making the soap. Yes. Uh, the grandsons. And they're, I was very impressed with how, to, how articulate and how, how, how sort of together, if that's the right word to use, but the, together these, these guys were uh, in the production of the soap, how really committed they, they are to, to the production of, of Dr. Bronner's soap. Yeah. And every day more so. I mean, I, I think they just, they have an incredible vision for, for where this can go. I know one of their big plans is to, they're going to have to expand soon, and they, they want to build a plant that's completely eco-friendly from the, you know, from the floorboards to the ceiling. You know, they just have no, um, they have like a, you know, no idea of where this can stop. They're really sort of going for it, and well, it's incredibly inspiring. Well, as you walk through the plant, through the film, uh, you see uh, the, the methods that they use, the material that they use. And I love the line, uh, uh, at one point there's a, he, Ralph encounters um, a, a gentleman in the hallway in the, in the hotel, Keith Waugh. I believe his name yes, is. Yes, exactly. And, of course, their conversation, Keith invites uh, Ralph to his uh, room to smoke a joint. And Ralph says, no, he doesn't do that. But, however, his soap company is the largest pusher of hemp in the country. <laughs> I just thought that good, was good word choice. <laughs> such yeah. a great, uh, great comeback. And uh, we're talking industrial hemp here, and for anyone who was wondering. But it's, uh, it, it's just a, it's, it's such a, you see a family, and you see... Like so many of us, you see the arc of a family, dysfunctional and all, and the beauty of these people working together in this in this uh, in this endeavor. It's really quite touching. Now, were you inspired by the moral ABCs? I was. You yeah. know, Ralph says not everybody agrees with everything, but everybody can find something that they do agree with. And, and I would say I find more than one thing that I agree with. And there were definitely times when the moral ABC gave me uh, courage to to continue my uh, <laughs> my work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it, it's a, such a refreshing thing to read rather than say just plain scripture. Because you never know when Mark Spitz is going to show up. <laughs> That's true. Mark <laughs> That's... Spitz could be lurking around in a corner. Well, yeah. The Mark Spitz. Now, there's the other big laugh in the film. And we, I don't want to give too much away, but that was pretty funny. I mean, I just, <laughs> I wonder if it, I just speculated in my own head. Did that have something to do with the fact that Dr. Brunner liked to swim? It's apparently, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, sure, he had some, some connection to Mark Spitz based on that. But, yeah. Uh, well, this is such a terrific film. Uh, I've, it's no longer in the theaters, which is a shame. Sort of came and went, uh, undeservedly came and went in the theaters, at least in Los well, Angeles. Well, that's what area. happens here in, in the big business. But, uh, but it is something that's available. The website is, is out there. It's magicsoapbox.com. And you can get the film. It's a great little package, too, yes. on, on the film. Wonderful packaging. This is really, again, I, I want to say, you know, we, we've seen a lot of great films uh, in this 
this is one of them. It should be uh, seen, and I want to thank you so much for coming here and talking to us about Dr. Bronner. Thank you very, very much. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Say hi to Gino. Okay, we will. All right. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye-bye. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.